Hey Rebels, yup, if you listen to this podcast, that means you're a motherfucking rebel. <laughs> Hi David, welcome to Rebellious, how are you? Very good. Awesome, I'm so glad you came by, this is amazing. You wrote this amazing book, One Nation Under Sex, how the private lives of presidents, first ladies, and their lovers changed the course of American history. So I first came across this book. One, because I actually really loved reading about Larry Flint. And when I saw that this book came out in 20, it came out in 2011, I think I read it in 2012. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. And he got a real professor to write it with him. So yeah. it should be legit. So how did that come to be? How did Larry contact you? How did this happen? Yeah. Well, the first time I met him, I was working as Senator Mike Gravel's communications director when mm -hmm. he was running for president in 2008. So... You know, we were just looking to raise some cash and we wanted to get some from Larry Flint. So uh, we went to his office and it was like going to meet the Pope. First off, the office was all decorated in this sort of mid-19th century French salon style. And then you walk down this long hallway and you sit in this kind of antechamber and then you finally get into the office and there are five different seating areas and you walk to his desk. and That's at his house? It was at his office. Oh, my God. And it was like this surreal experience where I'm just sitting there and then I got Senator Grill on one side and Larry Flint on the other. And they're talking about how they're going to revamp America. And I was like, it was like one of these crazy dreams. But suddenly I, I, I made, it must have made an impression because I had also been working on a TV show for the History Channel called The Beltway Unbuckle about mm -hmm. the, how the sex lives of presidents shaped American history. And Larry caught it on TV and he said, I know that guy. And he gave me a call and I was in my office at Columbia just mm -hmm. marking midterms and I get this call from Larry Flint's office and he said, you know, I saw your show and uh, I was wondering if you wanted to do a book together and uh, can you come out to L.A.? Oh, my God. So I'm like, of course I can come out to L.A. You know, when, when, <laughs> when you and he's like, how about Thursday? So I was like, sure. And he said, talk to my secretary. Click. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm on a flight to L.A. and uh, the rest is history. Oh, my God. And, and of course, his voice, unfortunately, was so distinct, uh, you know, due to his injury. So it's like you knew it was him right away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then I'm in L.A. and suddenly I'm at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel. Yep. And Al Pacino is at one table. Tom Cruise is at another table. Bruce Willis and Demi Moore is at another table. Oh and then I'm with Larry Flint and everybody's looking at us because he's a legend. Like he made history and, and yeah. that was, he was like a legend in Hollywood. So I was like, of course I'm doing this book. Oh, my God. So how did he pitch the book at first? He said he liked the TV show and he liked mm -hmm. how it was not just getting into scandals and mm -hmm. the sex story, but making the connections to the greater history of America. So the idea of now Larry with his vast experience, both in politics and in this realm, I thought this is this is great. Now, of course, I was thinking, but this will put a little damper on my appeal to getting <laughs> jobs in the <laughs> academic world later on. Yeah. But, you know, at a certain point in life, you just say, screw it. You know, let me go on the adventure. Do you think his reputation is warranted? 
Repu- d- yes, uh, it depends on the reputation. <laughs> now, what aspect of the reputation? Well, I mean, some people feel that he's just literally, they call him a smut peddler, and he's nothing more than that. Do you believe? Well, that's not true. Yeah. Yes, he was a smut peddler. Yes, absolutely. And and yes, he did. He put offensive covers, the, the famous meat grinder of a pair of legs that was definitely, you know, beyond. And he said, would l- later on tell me, I, I regret that cover. And... And so that that definitely was the case. But he was a fervent supporter of workers' rights and civil rights and gay rights uh, before gay rights were kill- were cool for yeah. anybody. So uh, and of course, free speech. I mean, yeah. the, the, the Supreme Court cases that he brought allow us now so much more freedom, allow comedians to make fun of public figures, which that was one of the cases was yeah. whether you could make satire towards public figures and the Supreme Court ruled in his favor and uh, we have more freedom as a result. So that Supreme Court ruling actually happened the day I was born. Is Febu- that right? Yes, February 24th, 1988. And the reason I even kind of found out about Larry Flint, besides the fact you kind of know him in the circles of, you know, Playboy as well, you know, like as part of a pornographer, they're like, oh, find something that happened the day you're born and write about it. So this came up and I'm like, is this the pornography guy? And then I remember doing all the research and I'm like, oh my God, that's an amazing case that came to be. And so I kind of became somewhat of a, a, a mini fan of his. Obviously, I know he doesn't have a perfect past. No one does. But I have to give him this. Since he has passed away, he passed away in, what, 2021? No one has come out against him that he did something like sexually assaulted them or abused them versus, what's his name? Hugh Hefner from Playboy has had endless women come out against him. Yeah. So I do think there's and, something and yet to be said Hugh was always the more socially acceptable, yes. right? And I think it has a lot to do with class. Sure. And Flint embraced the kind of working class in your face, right? The whole hustler aesthetic was that this is the magazine for uh, people who are dismissed and by the Playboy crowd. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot of classism that's involved. With it. Absolutely. And I mean, and it's kind of come out now that Hugh has done things that are abhorrent, you know, to a lot of the women that were part of his circle. And there's not one case against, well, I'm not gonna say there's not one. I wouldn't say there wasn't. <laughs> I wouldn't vouch for that. I wouldn't but vouch I, for that. But, but I would say that, that, you know, he regretted a great deal of mm-hmm. the stuff that he's known for yep. being controversial yep. on in terms of the publishing. Absolutely. So how did you guys start conducting the research? The way we worked is I, I did the legwork and the, the writing of the first draft. Uh, I'd send it to him, then I'd fly out there and we'd go over it, you know, and, and involved with that was also just talking about, to him about, about the stories because mm-hmm. I wanted to get his voice in my head. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, his voice and my voice kind of melded so that I could write the way, I, you know, I just thought that story needed to be told and it actually did sound like him too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of his comments and thoughts would then come out in the chapters as I wrote them. Gotcha. Got it. Got it. So he kind of went over what you wrote afterwards and gave you a little bit. And then talked about the stories beforehand so yeah. that he was already giving me his thoughts mm-hmm. and then that would then come out in the writing. So when you started doing this, did your colleagues or your wife or anyone in your family say anything to oh, you? My wife was disgusted. At <laughs> did uh, she, she get wasn't a my wife to meet yet, him? But, but she, oh yeah. But uh, she was not happy. No. Um, no. 
Uh, but uh, did she like him when she met him or no? Yeah, I mean, he's a charming, generous, warm guy, and you know, it, he clearly had an affection for me, and I had for him, and so mm -hmm. she, you know, she had no problem with that. She was suspicious that how this would be looked at by the academic world. Sure. After it came out, did you get backlash? Not really. Uh, okay. it, it kind of was like, wow, that's sort of weird and charming and, and odd, but you know, what else are we expecting from Dave Eisenbach who <laughs> wrote a book with Senator Mike Gravel, uh, you know, and as a straight guy who wrote a book about the gay rights movement. Right. So they, they, they kind of, it sort of fit in a weird way. <laughs> I started reading gay power. I wish I finished it before we had a chance to talk, but, um, excellent book. I actually wish I read that first before this. But this just came into my life just out of weird circumstances. So when writing this and researching it, what was your most surprising discovery? Even as a historian, you're just like, oh, damn, I never knew that. Was the relationship between Jackie Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. Yes, I had no idea. I had no idea. Wow. And that is really, it was, it, I, know, I was writing a, Ken, a, a chapter about the Kennedys, and then I stumbled upon, oh, my God. Bobby Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy now were together after the assassination. So then I was like, I now I have to write another chapter about the Kennedy. So the <laughs> Kennedys get two chapters. Yeah. And and that kind of then be, became this sort of notion of the, the continuing tragedy of the Kennedys and the associations with sex. And uh, so that's why I titled the chapter Sex, Death, and the Kennedys. And rightfully so. Was there any indication that they had a thing for each other before uh, John F. Kennedy passed away? No. Or he was assassinated? No. 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 It was 100% his brother passing, her husband brought them together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, that's not unusual where two people are in mourning mm -hmm. and then they, they find a sexual connection. That's not to say she wasn't having affairs prior to Kennedy's assassination, Jack, Jack Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. Yeah. But I also thought it was interesting. She was kind of playing um, Onassis and Bobby. It's like she favored Bobby and she wanted Bobby, but she kind of kept Onassis in just in waiting. Yeah. Well, she did the same thing with Jack. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the, the American public was sort of scandalized when she'd go off to Europe and she'd get on his yacht. This is Onassis is here. Yeah. And, and and just stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And what's going on with the, the first lady and Aristotle <laughs> Onassis? Yeah. And, and and part of that was to kind of get back at Jack, you know, because she knew what what he was up to. And so there was that that sort of rivalry that then continued yeah. uh with Bobby. So what what did you find that proved that relationship, her and Bobby? What was the evidence? It was everybody who was around them, and I'm talking about like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., okay, right? Lee Radzewell, who was Jackie's sister-in-law, who was mm -hmm. also having an affair with Aristotle Onassis. Mm -hmm. Jackie kind of stole him. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're reading all these these things, you know, and decades later where they're telling stories. And so, you know, I was very strict about making sure that I wasn't just printing a story that somebody said, but it had to be corroborated by multiple witnesses who were there who mm. knew them. and then it also every story had to have a connection to history like real political history right. that this was not just like some expose kind of book where oh here's a dirty story about Abe Lincoln and here's a dirty story about Ben Franklin that 
it always had to have a connection to the story of America. Yeah, no, I love that part of it because it could have been just another sleazy book yeah. with Larry Flint's name on it. But the way the fact that you came in here, you could tell it was written by academic professional did their research. The footnotes alone yeah. were pages and pages. So I was like, oh my God. Yeah, that that was very conscious. Yeah. Because I, I didn't want this to be seen as one of those books that just is a litany of this sex story and that sex story. I, right. I wanted to give it a narrative framework so that you actually see American history as you're going through and you learn a lot of American history right. as you go through. And also to kind of correct the absence of sex from serious political history mm. because historians have always seen sex as being something that's, well, that's private. That's got nothing to do with history. They have put blinders on two stories that actually do take part in the, the story of history of, of real yeah. historical events. So bringing the sex into the political history corrects the narrative. <laughs> How could it not have any effect? I mean, that's outrageous. Right. Right. But that's just mm -hmm. as soon as you put sex in, you were yep. considered, you know, not a real serious historian. Right. So that that affected generations uh, on how they viewed people like Abraham Lincoln and how they, they refused to acknowledge this guy liked to sleep with men, even though mm -hmm. the historical record was pretty clear they wouldn't actually touch it. Why do you think that happened? Do you think that's like an academic push to keep the sex out of the history or was it? Where do you think that stemmed from? It's the American puritanical the mindset. Puritan. Okay. So you're saying maybe they felt the audience would not respect the work or consider they it valid. They wouldn't respect the work, wouldn't consider it valid. Mm -hmm. And they also would thank the audience that you're trying to tear down Abraham Lincoln if you're saying mm -hmm. that he liked to sleep with men. Right. And no one wants to do that. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. I just want to fully understand Abraham Lincoln. And because I and Larry Flint, we don't have hangups about sex. We're not going to blame Abraham Lincoln for sleeping with men or think yeah. it's like something disgraceful or it's going to discredit our notions and mm -hmm. of him being the greatest president. So put it in there and, and make it part of the story that gives us a true feeling of who the man yeah. actually was. You know, it's interesting you say that. So my father... He could not accept the story of Thomas Jefferson yeah. and Sally Hemming. Could right. not accept it. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2016, but, you know, they came out. I think the DNA testing was done in the early 2000s, but then they were able to prove it with 23andMe, and he has multiple descendants. And I kind of wish I'd just show him, like, see, Dad? <laughs> they right. lie. But he could not accept it. He felt like, there's no way. This is a rumor. Founding father put on a pedestal. And my dad was a very intelligent man. I mean, was a, a software engineer, a pilot, understood complex things, but that was too much. Too much, too much. <laughs> and and then that creates this kind of barrier of understanding to Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. We have to remember Sally Hemings was the daughter of Jefferson's wife, you know, she had passed, mm -hmm. Jefferson's wife's father. So Sally Hemings looked kind of like his, his deceased wife. Well... So she was kind of part of the family beforehand. And, you know, so then they have kids and this gets into the kind of very weird world of slave owners and their relationships to slaves. Mm -hmm. So by exploring this story, which historians refuse to even touch, mm -hmm. right, we now have an understanding of slavery, mm -hmm. a Do different you, understanding. 
Do you have a hard time talking about that subject in school these days because it is so sensitive? Right. And yeah. I always talk about this, you know, it's, it's, you know, how consensual can a relationship be, be between one human being that's owned by another human being well, and at any course. time could be sold or beaten, you know, without any legal protections. Right. right? And uh, I believe I read one part of the story where Jefferson took her to France and she wanted to stay. And he was unfortunately able to convince her to come back home. And and he promised to free her kids, correct? Right. Yeah. In his diary, he used to kind of be tortured about the idea of slavery. It's like he knew it was wrong, but he wasn't going to give up his position, his, you know, situation. That's right. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and if we continue to sort of look at them as being absolutely evil because they participated in, when I say they, I mean like mm -hmm. founding fathers. In, right. in New York City, there's a, a a bill to remove statues of Jefferson and Washington from City Hall yeah, because they're slave owners. Well, okay, I get that, but that also misses the good that they did and the more complicated views of slavery than just a uh, good versus evil, like this this notion yeah. that they were just totally bad, and that you know they're they're just the same as as every other horrible slave owner in in history. It's much more nuanced than that. That's not to forgive at mm -hmm. all, but it's just a, a better understand. Yeah, I actually had a thought about that. I don't know. Tell me what you think of this. I always said, why don't we put the plaques of how society has changed their view yeah. over time. So you could read almost like a 360 read around the statue. Yeah. And yeah. maybe everyone gets a chance to understand how it kind of unfolded over time. Well, I, I had wrote an op-ed for the Daily News about Christopher Columbus. We have mm -hmm. a Columbus circle in New York City. Right. It's a big statue of Columbus and he was a monster. Yeah. And, and I said that, that rather than tear it down, let's transform Columbus circle into a public education area mm -hmm. where we put up plaques in which we talk about, yes, Columbus's crimes, mm -hmm. but also celebrate the Italian-American immigrants who assembled their nickels and dimes to build that statue and their great contribution right. so that we, we have now have a better understanding of first why people defend Christopher Columbus and, and why they consider it such an affront to the Italian-American community to tear it down, but right. also understand his horrible crimes. Right, exactly. I mean, people are complicated. We're an onion. There's so many layers to us. And uh, and a lot of, I, I hate when I hear that argument, like, oh, if I lived at that time, I'd never do it. Okay, fuck you. Yeah. Yes, you would. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Give me a break. And, and, and when you continue to tell yourself that, that yeah. thought, right, you get blinded to your own yes. crimes. Absolutely. potential to be a criminal. Absolutely. So what was Larry, what was the one thing Larry found in the research where he was like, oh my God, David, this is, I never knew. This is crazy. I would say that it was Lincoln. That was, he, he was most surprised about. Okay. Right? Now, what we know about Lincoln is not actually what he did in bed. We just have a, a record of mm -hmm. him sharing beds with men, including Joshua Speed. When Lincoln was elected to the Illinois legislature, he shows up and he's, you know, a lawyer, but he doesn't have any money. Mm -hmm. And Joshua Speed, who was the heir to a plantation in Kentucky with 70 slaves and owned a general store, says, well, I got a room upstairs. So you can stay with me. Mm -hmm. uh, the two of them then shared that bed in that room for four years. And, you know, Lincoln by that time had, had successful law practice and Speed had plenty of money. It wasn't because they, there weren't enough beds on the frontier that they had a share of bed. 
And then Speed suddenly announces that he's leaving. He's going back to Kentucky because he's going to get married. And Lincoln has a nervous breakdown. Speed writes that he had to go around their room getting all the razor blades because he thought that Lincoln was going to kill himself because of Speed. Uh, Speed leaves and Lincoln's friends write about how he's just wasting away. He won't eat. He won't leave his room. Lincoln talks about the only thing keeping me uh, from suicide is the the fact that I'm I haven't done anything good for humanity. All right, so that's very interesting. Lincoln doesn't get married until his mid thirties. Mm. Same thing with Speed, and and then during the Civil War, Lincoln befriends a Captain David Derrickson, who is one of the guards of the president, and uh, they share a bed. <laughs> At the uh, the summer cottage, again, right? It's not because there weren't enough beds that Lincoln liked sleeping with Captain Derrickson. This was noted in a regimental history of Derrickson, and and there were people in Washington writing letters like, you know, did you hear that Lincoln shares a bed with this uh, young bucktail soldier? What stuff? So yeah. for years, the historians would say, oh yeah, yeah, we recognize that Lincoln. Like to sleep with guys, but uh, it was because there weren't enough beds, and people looked at things different in those days. But that's not true. They yeah. they knew something was a bit odd that when Mrs. Lincoln's not away, Lincoln brings a man into his bed. Right. So he was doing it in the White House. So there was plenty of rooms there. Well, he was doing it in the the summer cottage, which was at oh a, the summer cottage. Yeah, this was a little bit outside of D.C. Lincoln mm-hmm. liked to get out of town and and uh, you know was sleep with guys sleep with, <laughs> and hang out with guys. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it was kind of a refuge from him. And and the, by the way, this this summer cottage where the president would have his retreat and and have you know hang out with Derrickson has a museum which acknowledges this relationship. Mm-hmm. So we are, as a society, as we become more accepting of gay rights and sexual freedom, have now the ability to revisit history. And it, yeah. and it, just because we're telling these stories, we're not trying to tear down Lincoln. We're yeah. just trying to give a fuller picture of who the man really was. Yeah, I mean, and he even wrote in his letters, he had a lot of angst about his wedding night. Oh, yeah. And uh, his wife was, she seemed to, what exactly did she suffer from? She seemed to have some mental yeah, well, problems. Yeah, she did. She did. And she had a rough life. You know, mm-hmm. she, she lost one son when they arrived in Washington, D.C. And then, of course, the assassination of Lincoln. So, so she, had, she had some a lot of trouble, as did Abraham Lincoln. But uh, Lincoln, you know, what struck me was when Joshua Speed leaves and, and Speed writes about how he has to get the razor blades because he thinks Lincoln's going to kill himself. And Lincoln's talking about killing himself. Yeah, that's a broken friends. heart. That is a broken heart. But later on, after Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, he invites Speed, who was a slave owner, to come to the White House. And, uh, and he says, uh, Josh, I know you're not going to like this Emancipation Proclamation, but you remember when you left? and. <laughs> And the only thing keeping me from killing myself was that I hadn't done anything good for humanity. Yeah. Well, I finally did it. Yeah. And that to me is a beautiful story. It is. It is. And you you draw this correlation that maybe because he was, you know, most likely homosexual, if not at least bisexual, maybe it gave him a sympathetic ear or mind to the slave cause. But then you also make this correlation, the president before Buchanan. Yeah. He was basically dating like a slave owner 
and never wanted to let the slaves go because of his slave-owning boyfriend, basically. That's right. right. (laughs) So on one hand, we got Abe Lincoln, the best president in American history, and then his predecessor, James Buchanan, the worst president in history and who was full-on gay. There was no mincing this, right? Uh, He lived for about 13 years with Senator Rufus King from Alabama. And, uh, but, but he was a queen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they were known around Washington, D.C. as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson called them the Siamese twins. Uh, Definitely. So everybody knew. Right. And that's another thing that is important to understand why it's valuable to reexamine the past with out any blinders on, mm-hmm. you're going to realize, wait a second, people in Washington, D.C. in the 1840s and 1850s knew these guys were gay, that they were together, that yeah. they were romantically attached, and they didn't have a problem with it. Was right? the word homosexual out at that point? No. Okay, what, so they would just call it queer? Like, what was the term They used? wouldn't even, you know, uh, probably sodomites. Sodomites, okay. Um, but uh, that was part of the ability of James Buchanan to get elected because there really wasn't a language for it and certainly not in the press. Okay. It was unspeakable, right? I, I write about at this time when, he, you know, he's, that he's running for president, James Buchanan, Walt Whitman comes out with Leaves of Grass mm-hmm. and people are reading it and you read it right now and you're like, oh my God, he's writing about gay sex. Oh, definitely. And yeah. uh, so how is this possible? Well, the reviewers at the time couldn't even talk about it. Right? They couldn't, they could, even the ones that were outraged by what they were reading, they didn't have the language or the ability to talk about it because then they would yeah. be talking about obscenity. So that gave James Buchanan a great deal of cover, right? But the problem for America was that James Buchanan came from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which was an abolitionist part of the country, mm-hmm. right? When he goes to Washington, D.C., and then falls in love with uh, Senator King. This slave owner from Alabama kind of absorbs this notion that the slave owning class is a noble class and they're doing right by the slaves. Mm -hmm. And then when he becomes president, he is constantly working overtly and covertly Mm -hmm. to protect slavery. Right. He's the one that pushes the Supreme Court justices to rule unanimously and against Dred Scott. And and when the, the South secedes after the election of Lincoln, he immediately starts pulling U.S. troops out of the South. He almost pulled them out of Fort Sumter. And fortunately, some aides stopped the order from going in, uh, going through. So this was a guy who was accused in his lifetime of being a traitor to the United States of America. And why? Wow. Because of this relationship and the influence of Senator King. And did they stay together like till one of them passed? To the very on? end. Till, till the very till, end. To the very end. Oh right. And in, in many ways, a beautiful love story. But on the other <laughs> hand, disastrous consequences for America. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it didn't just start there, because like even going back back to the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. Oh my God, this guy. <laughs> kind of secretly love him. He is just, he starts the first gossip column. He's basically yeah. like the what's that ridiculous thing you get in the grocery store? like the the star and like all those ridiculous magazines. He's writing things like that. But he is the reason the French gave us arms and help during the revolution due to the way he basically conducted himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was uh, he was so amazing in that regard. But then like his friend Adams, he like could not even believe that Franklin would act this way when he would go to France. Yeah. Well, you know, 
again, you, if there was no Ben Franklin, would France still have supported the American Revolution? That's possible, but th- that's not the story. Right. The story is that Ben Franklin goes over there and he just gets right into the world of the French salon and the whole idea of seducing women as a as a way of showing your prowess and your importance and his kind of flexible morality in which he courted the wife of a major French arms dealer to get the French arms dealer to respect him and send weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, Adams arrives and he's like, I can't believe this is how these people live, where a guy would not only allow, encourage his wife to have sex with the American ambassador. And then that would- So you French. Know, it's so French. It's like crazy because he, yeah. that would increase his prestige, right? Adams couldn't, couldn't uh, fathom it. Franklin, given his, you know, this that was what Ben Franklin was like when he was a young man, right? Yeah. Uh, and now that he's an old man, we're talking a guy in his 70s and he's running around French and, and getting a reputation. I, yeah, that's one thing about his age. Yeah. I couldn't believe he was still going. He was still going. And, and it's not that I don't think a 70-year-old can keep going. It's just in those days, you really didn't live past, like, maybe 60? Well, if you... If you did, you were yeah. pretty strong. Right. So you have to understand, right? <laughs> you know, you didn't need much medical care. Right. And if you managed to get into your 80s without medical care, man, you can keep on going. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, Ben Franklin's daughter is hearing rumors back in America and is writing him letters being like, you know, aren't you, you know, I'm hearing all these rumors about you and the French ladies. Maybe you need to tone it down. He's like, kind of mind your own business. He's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Well, I also like that he is, sometimes he gets in in his own way. He would like fall in love with that one salon owner Mm -hmm. and she was just like, no, I like my freedom. No thanks. And he like had a broken heart over it. Yeah. As much as he was a ladies man. Yes. So, (laughs) But again, that was part of the French way, this kind of dance. Yes. Right. Uh, Where you fall in love with a married woman and you write her all these letters. And it's part of like this um, courtly love tradition uh, that goes back to the Middle Ages. And uh, Ben Franklin just just got into it. And it really did help with the negotiations that led to the French support of the American Revolution. So talk about this. Was it a German soldier, Steuben? Uh, Steuben? Frederick von Steuben. Yes. Yes. So I've heard this name many times. And all right. So tell the story. Yeah. So George Washington's army was just a bunch of farmers, really. And uh, really. And then they're going up against one of the best trained uh, armed forces in the world. So. Ben Franklin understands that, so he's he's looking for somebody with military experience who can go over there and and train the soldiers. And uh, he hears about this guy Frederick von Steuben, uh, who was kicked out of the Prussian army, an officer, uh, for having sex with his troops. So uh, Ben Franklin doesn't care, <laughs> and von Steuben needs a job. So uh, the the two of them then agree. Okay, and he sends him a letter. You know, you know. Saying, you know, Frederick von Steuben, you know, he's this great military leader and uh, doesn't mention why he was no longer with the Prussian military. Uh, and he becomes the in charge of training Washington's army. Uh, and then later on, George Washington would say, look, it's not my army. It's von Steuben's army, right? He's yeah. the one that taught them how to drill in formation and fire in unison and uh, von Steuben was a great American hero, 
But stories of him having sex with his men got back to the U.S. Congress, and they wound up stiffing him from promised uh, uh, lands, and he didn't really get his due. But he retired after the war in upstate New York with one of his junior officers. Oh, well, yeah, you know, something in the out. end. <laughs> was, there, was there a different reason that they said that he— why he got stiffed out of that land? Yeah, they didn't talk about it. It's okay. just like suddenly he's not getting what he was promised and what can he do? And Right. Uh, so, but, you know, he did He did get a little bit of land and he got his junior officer. So, um, you know. They, they was there anything there. about George Washington when you did the research or was he? Uh, you know, there were stories about him and and his slaves. There was nothing that I felt directly impacted American history. So it wasn't a story that I put in. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Okay. That one surprised me. One, I always saw his name growing up. Of course, you know, when you're in fifth grade here, growing up in the Florida school system, I'm not sure about New York, but you do a trip to Washington. And so I'm just thinking it's just some guy who runs the FBI, but um, no, he's psychotic. He is literally psychotic. Yeah. I, I can't even believe the amount of information that he had on all these presidents, because he was in charge of the FBI for what, like 49 years? From the origins of the FBI, really, it's from 1918 to 1973. Oh, my God. Okay. So, yeah, long time. And he had dirt on every single president. That's right. But and, then the- and every senator, every congressman, every mover and shaker, every business tycoon, every Wall Street mogul and Wall Street star. He had the dirt on everybody who was anybody in the United States. So were you able to see these files doing yes. your research? Okay. So they are, you can ex- access them through like the Library of Congress? Yes. Okay. They they tried to, ha- they destroyed uh, massive numbers, but there was mm. one warehouse where there were duplicates oh, cool. that they didn't get to. Oh so we God. as historians now actually know, not that this wasn't known, everybody knew, you know, every, look, the way it would work would be... Um, Senator, you know, gets caught in a compromising position and uh, J. Edgar Hoover would get a report from an FBI agent who was trailing the senator or congressman and uh, then approach the senator or congressman and say, you know, we found this out. You got to be more careful, but don't worry. The FBI and J. Edgar Hoover is going to make sure this never gets out. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) so it was amazing. He literally controlled all these presidents between that time frame. Yeah, because every time a president, new president would come in, Jade Edgar Hoover would show up with the file. Mm-hmm. And again, right, uh, don't worry, we're going to make sure this never gets out, which is also a threat, mm-hmm. right? Make sure you reinstate me as FBI director. Do you think that still happens today? Like, do you think when Donald got in, or even Biden, do you think someone comes up and says, this is what we know? Well, this is what I read about at the very end of the book, is that, the reason why J. Edgar Hoover was able to blackmail and really control the government. I mean, he was in many ways more powerful than, the, than all the presidents he served under. Yeah. Right. Because he controlled them is because Americans, if they thought that a presidential candidate had affairs and, you know, that they wouldn't vote for him. So you had all these politicians worried that their personal lives would get exposed. So, of course, they're going to do what the blackmailer wants them to do. If we as a republic could get beyond, this is what I read at the end of the book in 2011, mm-hmm. beyond that and look past the personal life of, of a candidate so that there's no more blackmail and there's the, that, that we could just get the best person for the job, yeah. wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. 
And in a weird way, you got that with Donald Trump because yeah, everybody right. knew yeah, yeah. about his very uh, problematic uh, sex life. And, yeah. and, and people looked the other way. The Republican Party looked the other yeah. way. Of course, we didn't wind up with the best man for the job, but that's another story. <laughs> so as a New Yorker, how did you feel when Donald was running? I mean, as and a, you're born and raised, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. You know, I, I grew up in New Jersey, so I was part mm-hmm. of the New York kind of media world yeah. and, and absorbing my kind of I knew Donald Trump as the guy in the 1980s mm-hmm. who, you know, was having an affair with Marla Maples and that gets exposed. And then he has another affair and then right. they break up and it's just this messy. He was kind of like a clown. This mm-hmm. weird, ridiculous figure. That's that was my kind of notion of him. That was where most Americans looked at him. Is that how most New Yorkers looked at that, him? Absolutely. And okay. and that's sort of the, the the weird thing is that he was kind of a fixture in the New York social elite mm-hmm. because he was considered kind of like part of the furniture of New York. <laughs> he, he's he's loud and obnoxious, but he's goofy and silly, yeah. and no one took him like as a serious political threat or issue. It was only after he got elected that all of a sudden all these elites who always invited him to the parties, right? Anna Winter, you know, invited him to the the Met Ball, and mm-hmm. it was just you know he she put uh, Melania on the cover, right? Which is which in New York is the signifier that you are part of Correct. society. Mm-hmm. And then they all run to the hills like they never knew him, like they never went to his wedding. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton yes. went to his mm-hmm. wedding. Right? All these people who knew how obnoxious and disgusting he was. There were stories about him abusing women before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But they were still going to his parties and inviting to his parties. That's why, you know, these New York elites who now mm-hmm. think that they're so much better than Donald Trump. Well, they weren't saying that back in the 90s. Going back to Hoover. OK, so. The funny part about Hoover, he was going after communists, gay people. I mean, he was trying to get basically dirt on anyone he could possible, but he was, in fact, gay. Yeah. And this this is what makes him kind of a fascinating character, because mm-hmm. in order to protect himself, he goes on the offensive to get the dirt on everybody else so that no one would even dare to print a story about his relationship with his number two at the FBI, Clyde Tolson. Clyde Tolson, yeah. And so I was also reading in your gay power book that the mob owned all the gay nightclubs in Greenwich. At the time, I guess New York City had some laws. Yeah, Greenwich Village uh, had laws that you weren't allowed to be basically gay in public. I didn't know that either. The law was uh, that a bar could get its liquor license pulled if they served open homosexuals. Okay. I, that is like, how do you police that? Well, you put undercover agents in the bars yeah. to monitor whether somebody with two pieces of clothing from the opposite gender. <laughs> yeah, this, these are the laws. Yeah. Or anybody, exper- you know, showing public displays of affection to a member from the same sex. Mm. I that that bar would get its liquor license. The two pieces of clothing is crazy. Yeah. It was it was wow. laws against cross dressing. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Right. So, okay. So, no one wants to open up a bar that would allow that to happen, except the mob, mm-hmm. because what they would then do is then take some of the profits and then pay off the local priest, police precincts, who would either tip them off if there was some sort of a raid or would just look the other way. Yeah. So the mob takes over the gay bar business in New York City. Did they also do it in other states? 
I'm sure. I don't I don't know about that, but I was, yeah. I was in this book I was really focused on New York. Do you think that's how they figured out Hoover was gay? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So, yeah, you know, Jager Hoover, right? Uh was great at, you know, at finding communists. Yeah. But he ignored and would actually deny the existence of a mafia throughout his career. He would always look the other way, right? Meanwhile, the mafia is taking over the rackets. They're taking over the the drug trade. They're, you know, corrupting politics on every level, right? But he's looking the other way. And there's always a question of of why. Did, Did the mob have the dirt on Hoover? Now, this was something I didn't want to get into in the book because I didn't have proof. And, you know, this is one of those historical mysteries where you hear mm-hmm. stories, but, you know, until you know for a fact, you really shouldn't put it down right. in print. So here's the story. Now, I'm not saying I know this is true. I'm just saying this is the story. We're holding you to those. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> James Jesus Angleton, who's the chief of counterintelligence at the CIA, allegedly had a photograph given to him by either one of his agents or somebody in the mob and the mm-hmm. CIA and the mafia, we do know, had been working hand in hand on a number of covert operations in okay. the 1950s and 60s, including the attempted assassinations on Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. So he had deep connections with the mafia. Mm-hmm. A picture that he would bring out at parties of J. Edgar Hoover going down on Clyde Tolson. And there was a great deal of rivalry between the FBI and the CIA. And the story is that the mob was protected as a result of this photograph, but also the CIA. They could do whatever the hell they wanted, mm-hmm. including operate in the United States. So they got into J. Edgar Hoover's territory, which they wouldn't have been able to do if J. Edgar Hoover wasn't blackmailed oh by the black railers. Oh, my God. That's crazy. It's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not true, I just like telling the story. You know, it's it, you know the the Jay Groover chapter was the hardest one to write, and mm-hmm. I, I thought going in this is going to be easy. I mean, it is a ton of stuff, and a lot of it is just already on the record, and you, yeah. you know. But I hated the man so much, and you can write you can write from a place of like love. You personally hated him. I hated him. Okay. He is like I felt everything that, that is antithetical to who I am. You know, it's just that orderly mentality that everything has to be policed and controlled and judged. And meanwhile, you're the biggest hypocrite in America. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you can write in a place of love and you can write in a place of hate. And I was writing in a place of hate. So the every page was just painful coming out. And uh, so, yeah, that was not what a, did Larry not think of like your first draft of it and um, the Hoover part? Well, for him, he he it was sort of enlightening to him because he grew up in this era. Yeah. So it actually, that chapter answers a lot of stories and a lot of, kind of fills in a lot of gaps, like the harassment of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Right? And and this visceral hatred that, that J. Edgar Hoover had, that he was then able to use the FBI to blackmail King. And both Robert Kennedy and Jack Kennedy signed off on the wiretapping and bugging. Right. So that raises the question of why would they do that? Well, the answer is he, J. Edgar Hoover, was blackmailing Kennedy with his affairs. Yeah. And so when you start to kind of piece together the story, you, everything kind of comes in the line and you see, oh my God, just as the, the moment you, you're like, I hate this guy so much, then you start reading about the harassment of Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King and, and how he taped Martin Luther King having affairs. 
and put it into a highlight reel, sent it to King's home, along with a note uh, suggesting that he kill himself or the information would be exposed to the press. Yeah. And now you see the bravery that King, understanding and knowing this couldn't have come from anybody else but the FBI. Mm -hmm. So he knows he's on the FBI list, that the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, the most powerful man in America, wants him dead, and that he won't shut up. He continues to go out there. It makes me even more admiring of Martin Luther King. Yeah. And and Kennedy tried to warn him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this all, these things come together. There was a sex scandal in England called the Perfumo scandal that uh, involved the minister of war. And it brought down the prime ministership of Harold Macmillan. And among the women involved in this sex scandal was someone that JFK had had some worse blinks. Shocking. <laughs> so it looked like this thing could get back to America. J. Edgar Hoover picks up on this and then goes to Robert Kennedy with this information again in his typical way of saying, you know, I'm, we're keeping an eye on this, but be careful, mm -hmm. right? Also, you know, give me what I want. Yeah. And what I want is the ability to bug Martin Luther King. Yeah. And I need your sign off, not because I need your sign off, because Jagger Hoover would bug anybody he damn well pleased. He didn't need permission from the attorney general, right? Uh, but because if he got caught, mm -hmm. then he could sandbag the Kennedys. Uh, yeah. So he's All like, right. nope, I had the sign off. You got it. Uh. Right. Yeah. Why do you think Martin didn't heed the warning? Because it seemed like he was a little reckless, even though. <sighs> Here, uh, here's why. And just looking at Jack Kennedy, yeah. you could say the same thing, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. You he know, was very I reckless. Mean, totally reckless, even though he knows mm -hmm. Jay Groover's watching him. That's, mm -hmm. that's why Kennedy, you know, pulls King aside and they take a walk to the Rose Garden because he's afraid that the White House is bugged. Mm -hmm. First off, you know. When he warns King about this, it's it's sort of an understanding. You just, just be careful. If you can be careful, then you can avoid any problems, right? That that notion, it's what we tell ourselves all the time when right. we're in dangerous situations, right? Yeah. You know, how many people have affairs with the notion that I'm never going to get caught, right? right. I'm going to be careful, right? So people have an expectation <laughs> that it's all going to end wrong. Yeah. It's all going to work out in the end. So yeah. I don't. I think the you know these two men are no different than many I see. other. Yeah. Right. But I also think it was a understanding of the times. The press did not report on the personal lives of politicians and public figures. This yeah. was just. It was not considered news in that time. There was this kind of understanding that that is private stuff. That is not news. And certainly, when you're dealing with the president of the United States, if you were to print a sex scandal about Marilyn Monroe, which DC was talking about, then you would jeopardize the security of America. So no one, even if your, your story wouldn't even get it to print, the editor right. would spike it. Same thing with King. When King refuses to bow down to J. Edgar Hoover's threats, uh, Hoover tries to shop the story of King's affairs to the press and he gets rejected. He writes memos like, I can't believe the press isn't going for this. These publishers aren't going for this story, right? Because there was that code of ethics, which will later on disappear. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't have enough blackmail, like, on the publishers to yeah. get what he wanted. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that in the case of both presidents and Martin Luther King, how important King was to mm -hmm. the United States of America in that 
very precarious moment when the civil rights movement is just getting started. I think the publishers understood this would set America back mm -hmm. decades. Yeah. Just when we were about to make some progress on this. You know, and it's a, uh, I've heard that argument from people before uh, where they're like, you know, King was a womanizer. No one considered Jack Kennedy a saint. Yeah. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King is kind of this modern day saint. Yeah. And so it's, it's very problematic reconciling, right, his being a, a man with, with that image, right? And so the point of this book is, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. He yeah. is a saint. In fact, he's even braver than you thought mm -hmm. uh, because here you have J. Edgar Hoover threatening to destroy him if he didn't kill himself, and yet he still puts himself out there yeah. to the point where he wind up getting killed yeah. under very suspicious circumstances. So, uh, so I admire King even more after learning all this. And, and in many ways, I, I understood Kennedy even more after learning mm -hmm. all this because, you know, he's also under this stress of he wants to make this detente with the Soviet Union. And at the same time, he's being mm -hmm. uh, threatened by the right. You know, if, yeah. if you go along this road, we're going to expose you. And he's like, you know, but I've got to do the right thing and also, they were young guys. I Sometimes it's hard, you know, when you're younger learning about this, you're like, oh, man, they're much older. But then yeah. I'm reading it now. I'm like, oh, they're not too far from my age now. <laughs> and you're just like, wow. I mean, the things they were going through to deal with that level of stress and the, the multitudes of things happening, the politics of the time, especially what Kennedy was going through with the Cold War. It's kind of amazing what they were able to get through. That's right. That's right. Given all they were up against. Yeah. Right. And it's only by when we look at it in the past, we're kind of like, well, obviously you could pass a civil rights bill that would outlaw segregation in 1964. <laughs> right. No. no, it was a different world. The past is like a foreign country. You have to go yep. back into the past and understand where people are coming from and always be careful about judging people based on. 21st century values and understandings and 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 say oh, like JFK you know yeah. womanizer Martin Luther King womanizer and you always have to be careful about imposing our judgments on the past absolutely have you heard about ML uh, Martin Luther King's white mistress I I don't know about <laughs> okay so I recently came across this actually on a TikTok so I went and researched it further I'm like really I've never heard this ever in my life. And it actually was written in one of the biographies written about him. Her name was Betty Moitz. And he basically, when he was young, he, I think he met her in college or around that time. And he kind of was at a, a crossroads in his life. Should I marry Betty and kind of take on that fight? Or should I go into activism and take on a greater fight? And he did choose activism and, um, but he he kept he had so much love for Betty. They kept in contact. I think they still kind of had enough. They still had like a sexual relationship. And I think that would when I read that, I actually was like, you know, this kind of makes sense with his message. You know, it's not about the color of your skin; it's the content of your character. Mm. So for yeah, me it made no, sense. I, I I don't know about this story, but but this is kind of what I'm doing in the book is is saying all these stories that were always dismissed or like that this is not real history, mm -hmm. right? are part of the history. They need to be part of the history. A similar thing is Eleanor Roosevelt's affairs yeah. with women, mm -hmm. uh, particularly women in the uh, uh, after Franklin uh, got polio and uh, who 
taught her the importance of the women's rights movement. And, uh, you know, be before uh, she meets up with these, these, these lesbian couples, she was against women's right to vote. She was against the ERA. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they're the ones that kind of re-educate her she, to abandon her prejudices against blacks and Jews and, mm -hmm. and become this great kind of hero of social justice. They kind of teach her how to drive and, uh, you know, just bring her out of her shell so that she becomes this kind of forceful figure in American life. That doesn't happen without these extra extramarital relationships. Absolutely. Right. So because historians have traditionally looked the other way on this, they've missed a major factor in the psychological and political development of these major historical figures. Yeah, absolutely. No, that uh, that chapter, uh, her name was Hick, right? That was one of them. Uh, Lorena Hickok. Or yeah. the main one. Yeah. I guess the one the, she... The, 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 the love, the deep love. The deep love, yeah. yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Like, even uh, she would write all these amazing letters to her, but Hick would be like, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> even though I guess Hick, was Hick basically known as a lesbian? Like, she would oh, yeah. out? Okay. You know, Lorena Hickok was, you know, cigar smoking, <laughs> real butch. Yeah. Uh, a fierce uh, woman who she would like punch you if you if you stepped oh out of line. Oh yeah, yeah, no, she was like a real kind of baller, and she had to be because she was a journalist in a very rough and tumble world journalism. She was the head of the AP bureau of, of New York City. Oh wow! Yeah, and in in, we're talking about in 1930. Mm -hmm. Right. So she's in a man's world and she's making her way and she gets assigned to cover Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1932 election while they fall in love. Yeah. And Lorena winds up giving up this incredible career as a journalist. Right. To follow Eleanor to D.C. Oh, wow. And and be, she gets some jobs in the government that it's arranged for Eleanor arranges for her. But she also becomes Eleanor's advisor. And she's the one that convinces Eleanor when she when Eleanor was getting pushback from the White House staff on issues like civil rights because they didn't want to upset the Southern senators and congressmen and women's rights, et cetera. Lorena says, why don't you just have your own press conference? Mm -hmm. And so Eleanor has regular press conferences thanks to Lorena. Lorena also, also convinces her, why don't you write an op-ed piece? And, and it becomes this regular column syndicated throughout the United States called My Day by Eleanor Roosevelt. It runs from the 30s to the 60s, and it's Eleanor Roosevelt's thoughts on everything from uh, civil rights to workers' rights to— uh, What did Franklin it, think of this? Well, Franklin was very welcoming of Eleanor's relationships with mm -hmm. these women. He even built uh, a little house in Hyde Park so that when they stayed up there, Franklin would stay at the family house with his mom. And Eleanor would be with her uh, friends and the, the Val Kill, would, what Ella, uh, Franklin called it, the, the little love nest on the Val Kill. And uh, he knew that, you know, that's that's Eleanor's thing. Of course, Franklin had his own girlfriends. Right. So this was great. You know, everybody's happy. Yeah. You know, at the White House, uh, Franklin had his bedroom. Next door was his girlfriend, Missy Lahand, who was also his assistant. Mm -hmm. Eleanor had her bedroom, and then Lorena would come over right. every night. You know, it was all cool. And the White House staff knew this, and no one said a word to the press. And the press that the, the press knew about it, but they weren't going to uh, right. print this in the middle of the Great Depression and the, and the Second World War. 
So when did that shift happen? Because the founding fathers, they would print crazy things. There was even a picture of Jefferson like on a rooster, on a cock, and then Hemings. Um, and and they, they didn't care at the time. So when did that kind of shift where they're like, no, we're not going to do that anymore? That's right. So the early American press in the 18th century would, would just print anything. They, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, they printed stories about how Dolly Madison was sleeping with Thomas Jefferson, who was mm-hmm. president of the United States, so that her husband, James Madison, could be secretary of state, right? <laughs> There's nothing true about it. But those are the stories that just regularly filled the newspapers of the press because each of the newspapers would be affiliated with either the Federalist Party or the Democratic Republican Party. And mm-hmm. It was a free-for-all. There was no kind yeah. of code of ethics. That changes really at the end of the 19th century when you have the emergence of this kind of professionalized journalistic world, yeah. right? This New York Times becomes the standard of all the news that's fit to print and objectivity. Mm-hmm. And there's also a sense that in order to make your way in the business, you need access. It's called access journalism. You don't try to take down the politicians. You build them up so that Mm. they'll give you the scoops, right? And if you ever tried to go after a president, first off, your editor would never allow you to print the story. Secondly, you'd be blackballed from the old boys club. And why would you want that? Because it's fun. The D.C. world was fun hanging out with these politicians and you get to see what's going on and you're you're part of it. Mm -hmm. So, um That even gets intensified even more during the Second World War and the Cold War, where to question the president's private life publicly was to potentially destabilize the the republic and uh, create a national security threat. So that's why Kennedy, FDR, right, Martin Luther King were able to get away with so much, even though everybody who was in the know understood and knew what was going on. The D.C. press corps knew what what right. FDR and Eleanor were up to and what Jack Kennedy was up to, but that they wouldn't, they wouldn't print it. That all changes with the end of the cold war. Now the heat's off. What do we even need a president for? You know, <laughs> you know, who cares, right? What else are we going to report about the emergence of cable news, 24 seven news channels need some stories, right? Nobody's concerned about foreign affairs. So let's forget about that. Okay. And domestic policy, that's kind of boring. Oh, we got a sex scandal here. Mm-hmm. Right, let's go for this Clinton stuff with Paula Jones and Monica Lewinsky and, you know, see what happens. And right. you also have the with the end of the Cold War, the Republican Party now lost a major issue. One of their advantages over the Democrats for decades was they were stronger on defense. Well, mm-hmm. what happens when there's nothing to defend against anymore? What are we going to move on to? The Republican Party moves on to cultural issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture wars, moral morality and, and that kind of thing. So you have these forces that are moving just beyond the scale of the presidency. And that's something I wanted to really trace in the in the book is yeah. that this is a story of changing media and how mm-hmm. they relate to the presidency and how we go from a world where Jack Kennedy could be having sex with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, is there a hotter story than that? Right. But nobody would print it to Monica Lewinsky. You know, because people, look, the press and in, in when they were printing stories about Alexander Hamilton having sex with a guy's wife, Mariah mm-hmm. Reynolds, and her husband, James, paying, uh, I mean, uh, Alexander Hamilton paying her husband the ability to have sex with his wife, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the press had a field day with that, yeah. right? 
And it didn't matter. Alexander Hamilton still, you know, kept his career when Sally Hemings and Jefferson's story emerges. Jefferson still remains president and, you know, everybody just sort of moves on. Americans don't care, right? There's another argument in the book. It's, sex scandals have never affected the actual outcome of an election. They force candidates to walk away like Gary Hart before mm -hmm. they go, which is a big mistake. Yeah. If you get caught in a sex scandal, you're better off just going for it. Right. And you get yeah. elected like Bill Clinton. You kind right. of move on until you yeah. get yourself in the next sex scandal. <laughs> right. So so we've always as a as a public, as a people, you know, yeah, we get titillated by a sex scandal. But does that really affect our vote? No, man. It's, our, you know, our pocketbooks and our security and our kids future. Yeah. That's what decides. Ooh. Definitely. Right. The press, however, it, they're the ones that change. The press starts to suppress and look the other way on these sex scandal stories. At the end of the 19th century, right about 100 years till the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's game on again, right? Yeah. These things are in the press, right? The, they're just looking for it. And it's not a coincidence that this happens simultaneously with the emergence of the internet. Mm -hmm. Because no longer is information controlled by six publishers and editors in Washington, D.C. and New York. Yeah. That... When Jack Kennedy had his sex scandals and the stories were starting to emerge, Bobby Kennedy could literally make a phone call to twelve people, phone calls to twelve people, and shut down a story nationwide. That, that's very true. Yeah. Right. Those days are over once the internet hits. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And one of the key aspects of the Bill Clinton story is that the editors at Newsweek spiked Michael Isakoff's uh, story about the Monica Lewinsky uh, affair, and the story would have died, except. The news or the, the word got to Matt Drudge out in Los Angeles, who had a tiny little website, like, yep. you know, and Drudge prints the story that Newsweek spiked the story of Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, he was like a blogger. And he was like a blogger. He had like, you know, I don't know, 700 followers, maybe more. I don't know. But the point is, is that once that got out, all of a sudden the Drudge report blows up. Everybody's mm -hmm. going online. Some people for the first time. To look at internet news, yeah, which nobody point. even knew about, that this thing existed. And then all of a sudden now ABC News, the Washington Post, all the establishment media has to respond to this story on the Drudge Report on a website. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so you have this technological change that makes control of news for better and for worse, mm -hmm. less likely. So I was, I think, 10 or 11 when that story broke. And my there, it was a divided household, okay? Um, <laughs> so my family kind of has a funny background. So my whole family is originally from Tennessee. So they are Democrats because the old Southern Party was oh, Democrats. Yeah. But some of them have now flipped to the Republican because now that's the new Democrats. Like the Democratic South flipped. Exactly. So, but at the time, uh, I remember my grandfather was alive. They were Democrats and they loved Clinton. They didn't like what he did, but they loved Clinton. Yeah. My mom, who I, at the time, it's kind of funny. She's like flipped back to Democrat now, but at the time she was Republican because she was religious. Could not, she could not believe it. She just was like up in arms. But it was the first time that I heard so much about a president Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, I'm only 10 years yeah. old, only been on earth for 10 years, but I, it literally, no one ever talked about it before. Yeah. 
It was so much. I saw it on every SNL skit, yeah. Mad TV. You couldn't get away from it. And then when the Star Report came out, to find that online, me and my girlfriends, oh my God, that was the best read. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's the it's the titillation and it's the fact that, you know, this is a new scandal or sex, yeah. a scandal, a political scandal that everybody can understand. Yeah. Right? So it's going to sell. And yeah. there was, there. it had a comedic quality to it. You know, Bill Clinton sang on the stand, I did not have sexual relations. Yeah. Right? And then the question is, okay, how do we define sexual relations? Yes. <laughs> and according to the lawyers, this is an Paula Jones lawsuit. Bill Clinton was accused of sexually harassing Paula Jones when he was governor of Arkansas. And she, mm -hmm. being funded by a right-wing billionaire, brings her case all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court foolishly rules. This won't be a distraction to the president's time. Right. Uh, she can go forward and sue him in federal court for sexually harassing her. Right. Well, her lawyers asked Bill Clinton, right, did you have sexual relations with a number of women, including Monica Lewinsky? And his lawyer was able to get sexual relations defined as, and I always have trouble explaining this to my <laughs> students in class, right, on the U.S. presidency, as defined as giving. Giving. Mm. Right? As long as you're uh, uh, receiving, mm -hmm. that was not sexual relations as defined in the court case. Okay. So when he testifies on the stand that he did not have sexual relations with Monica, as long as he wasn't giving, he, was, he was not having sexual relations. I got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which is bullshit. Well, yes, <laughs> it was. And the, the whole question then comes down to, was he just giving? Mm. Or, I'm sorry. Was he just receiving? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, most uh, of the time. <laughs> and most of the time, but not always, it turns yeah. out. And so when Ken Starr issues his report, he now has to outline all the times when Bill Clinton was giving. Oh, my God. That's why those footnotes in the Starr report were so dirty. Yes, yes. I mean, the cigar the, and <laughs> the, the pussy cigar. was the most ridiculous. So for a 10, 11-year-old, I was like, oh, he did what? <laughs> so you were exposed to that at 10 and 11? In that, well... That was uh, Rotten.com. Okay, that website's insane. It doesn't exist anymore. So you were already looking on the internet for oh, that? Oh, yeah. So my dad was a software engineer, so we had everything. At 11 years old, I had a cell phone. Whoa. I mean, it was crazy. So my parents didn't understand, like, the dark web. They didn't think we were doing anything. Like, they thought we were just dialing up and going on chat rooms, which we were. Yeah. We were. We were chatting with our friends. But man, once you found Rotten.com yeah. and all those other crazy websites, right. Right. How, could, how could you not look at it? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so amazing with, with new technology. You just assume, oh, everything's going to be fine, right? Yeah. You know, the danger is what you would watch on HBO. And right? my mom had no way of policing because she could barely use the phone. Yeah. And then my dad could have policed it, but I, did, I just don't think he cared. He was so busy about just building and programming his own things. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah just so for a, an 11-year-old to read that, you're like... This is what adults do. Yeah. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it warped my mind about sex for a little while. But uh, <laughs> just being completely honest. Um, but what actually got me when I was rereading that part of the book, that's so fucked up what those girls did to her. Uh, what's her name? Trip. 
Oh, Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp. They am recording Monica's basically confession saying, I'm in love with Bill. He's basically not talking to me. Yeah. You know, she, she's like a lovesick teenager. I know she's 22, but yeah. at 22, let's be honest, you're... <laughs> yeah, know what's going no, on. I don't blame Monica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't blame her one bit. Here, this is this is sort of like how it kind of rolls out, is the assistant chief of staff gets a, a report from the Secret Service guys who, mm-hmm. you know, Monica would come in every time, you know, Hillary wasn't around, so they knew what was going on. Yeah. Right? And they're like, this is kind of... Well, right. I mean, we're not even sure she's. What are we gonna do? A background check on her and that kind. Of... Yeah. So, assistant secret uh, chief of staff mm-hmm. reassigns her to the defense department, right? mm-hmm. thinking, okay, as long as she's out, she's out. Right. The problem was she becomes the coworker at the Pentagon with this woman called Linda Tripp, who was a former White House staffer who got fired by Bill Clinton. So she's got an axe grind. She's She had this plan to write her own book. Oh, I didn't realize she was fired as well by him. Yeah, well, uh, she got transferred. Tra- yeah, yeah, that, I get that, you. That, apparently, the Pentagon was wherever they would shuffle <laughs> whoever the they didn't want around the White House anymore. Yeah. Right? So she's got this plans to write her own tell-all book. And then Monica just walks in the door, and Linda befriends her. And and she's got a book agent. And the book agent says, "Oh, you got to get Monica on the telephone talking about this. You got to yeah. record her, right?" And so they get the dirt. The idea is, well, now we got to feed this story to a reporter, and they'll publish it, and then we can write the tell-all book. We can sell the tell-all book that way. Yeah. So they're feeding information to Michael Isakoff at Newsweek. Mm-hmm. And he's part of a new generation of journalists that grew up worshiping Bob Woodward and Bernstein, right? And the investigative journalists, the guys who are no longer playing access journalism, mm. right? Yep. Who are all about taking down, right? The king. And only he's doing it over this, Michael Isikoff, please. Yeah. Anyway, so he then uh, goes with this story. It gets spiked. And so Linda Tripp then decides, okay, I'm now going to feed this to Matt Drudge. Now, meanwhile, Linda Tripp is also feeding Monica's story to Paula Jones' lawyers and Ken Starr, who was, his investigation was supposed to be about Whitewater, this land deal gone bad in Arkansas in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But he's now not finding any dirt because Bill Clinton was not about the money. Yeah. Right. Uh, not finding any dirt, he's like, all right, let's, you know, maybe he, you know, was telling his girlfriends, you know, his financial misdoings. Yeah. So he's looking for anybody who will spill the dirt about Bill Clinton. So now this, the trap is set. When Bill Clinton testifies that he did not have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. He's committed perjury. And now Ken Starr can go after everybody, including Monica Lewinsky. Now, what's, what's, when the story first broke, Bill Clinton's staff, right? He's saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Right? Most famous line ever. One of the most <laughs> famous lines ever. And that was the story from the staff. Like it was like she's this this is what they said at the time, right? The word is she's a little nutty, mm-hmm. a little slutty. Yeah. They were going to slut shame Monica Lewinsky and be like, She's crazy. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that would have just destroyed her, and that's how they were gonna do it. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing that saved her was the dress mm. that Bill Clinton got some of his DNA on her dress. Yeah. She saved that dress because they totally would have sandbagged her. And that. wasn't it Trip who told her to save the dress? 
that's I, that's the story. I'm not so sure that's entirely true, but okay. but the but the point is she yeah. saved the dress. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the way, it wasn't just Linda Tripp that she was talking about her affair with the president. She was mm-hmm. telling her aunt. She was yes. telling her mom. Right. She was like a typical teenager. I know she was 22, but people have to remember 22. I'm sorry. You're not emotionally mature. I teach 22 year olds. They're children. They're children. They might look like adults. They're not adults. I'm 35. I'm a child. Okay. I'm a child here. Yeah. No, but so when I look back at it at 11, you're thinking 22. Oh yeah. They're totally adults. You're an adult. Yeah. And then. People were slut shaming her like horribly. I mean, she had a blowjob named after her, the Lewinsky, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, all this stuff. And I didn't realize that she literally got set up by these people. Yes, she was running her mouth 100%. That was so stupid on her part. What and and I'm not I'm not saying Monica's 100% innocent. She's obviously not. She knew the man was married, but you know, all that. Um, and also, I thought that was interesting in the book. You said that her mother caught her having an affair with an older man and got her to go to yeah. Washington because in she Los was Angeles, de- when she's living in Los Angeles, yes. she has an affair with an older man. So and to get her away from him, possibly daddy issues. She arranges this internship at the White House. Yes. So that that little tidbit of knowledge was very interesting. Still, once again, I'm not holding it against no. her, but like we're saying with all of these people in the book. We are a combination of so many deep layers to us and why we do certain things. And I don't think it's um, fair to judge someone off their mistakes when they're 22 years old. Yeah. Or their mistakes when they're 40 years old, like Martin Luther King Jr. Like if if that story came out, you know, then that could have been the end or it certainly would have set back the civil rights movement in a very Mm -hmm. big way. Right. So. One of the ideas of the the hope of the book mm-hmm. was that we we're going to start to be more mature, and when you know this yeah. these sex scandal stories come out, you know, like we we don't need to, you know, occupy the presidency for two years with this impeachment saga. Uh, and of course, at the time, it was the 1990s, right? The mm-hmm. stock market's booming, the Cold War is over, America has no threats, right? Well, not so fast. Yeah. Right. We can't let that happen again, right? That was the idea. So, yeah. Uh, and then the the other thing is that you brought up about Monica. She would have been destroyed not just by Ken Starr on the right and Linda Tripp and that cabal, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, if they didn't get involved, she would have been fine, right? The story doesn't go beyond her mother and her her aunt. Yeah. But also the Clintons would destroy her. Oh yeah. They set her. They they you know if is if she didn't have the the DNA proof. They mm-hmm. totally would have sandbagged her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the Clintons are not innocent in any way in this thing. No. And um, I told you I w- was watching uh, Monica's TED Talk on the way here. Yeah. Just I just, you know, just trying to piece all these things together, trying to remember what I thought when I was 11. And uh, one thing that kind of struck me, she did not say she was a victim. She said that she actively went after him. She was in love with him. She's just, you know, typical 22-year-old. But she said the cyberbullying was so bad that she was not allowed to shower alone. Her mom kept the door open to make sure she, like, wouldn't do anything. Because uh, I guess at the time, that's when cyberbullying kind of spiked. And, like, some people, like, killed themselves over things that were put on the Internet. Yeah. And, yeah. Look, she was being made fun of on Saturday Night Live. For, like, six months straight. You know, I mean, can you imagine... 
that, mm-hmm. you know, you're in your early 20s and they're just making fun of you. You know, your your name is synonymous with a, with a yeah. blowjob. Right. And this like poor girl. They're I mean, making I, fun of Bill, too. But it does it. It's not the same. No. Not he's even a close. man. Exactly. And he's he's not 22 and he's he's not, you know, trying to date. And and I mean, her life, you know, in many ways it was destroyed. I, I give mm-hmm. her a lot of credit for, you know, taking on this cause of cyberbullying and mm-hmm. just keeping it together. Right. And and I also give her credit at the time. Ken Starr wanted her to wear a wire on Bill Clinton, but she refused. She refused. Yes. So she stood up, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I think that uh, we're I tried in the book to kind of make her the hero of the story. Yeah. That that she really was the only one that you could actually admire. Not Hillary, not Bill. It was Monica. You know, you did a, I guess it was like a press conference, you and Larry at this, some California commerce something community. The Commonwealth Club. Yes. Yeah. That, I knew it was someone with a C. And there was a lady that stood up and basically tried to manipulate you and Larry's words and I said- I don't remember this. She, she basically said, why are you framing all the women in your book as manipulated, like to be a manipulator and none of the men? And you piped back. You're like, no, no, no. We gave the, I think it was you or Larry. I think you both said it. Basically, we're the only ones defending Monica Lewinsky. You clearly didn't read the book. And I love that you did that because it was so true. It's just like this woman was so out of left field. I listened to the whole thing. It was like an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. It was so out of left field and it was so telling that she never read the book and to automatically assume just because you're two guys that you're writing it not in favor of women. I thought in this book, you gave favor to both. I thought it was, I mean, considering the year it came out, I didn't have an issue, but I I thought that was really telling. Yeah. Well, you know, again, because Larry and I weren't judgmental. We're not judgmental about Monica Lewinsky. We understand, right? I mean, God, he was the president of the United States and he was Bill Clinton. Yeah. You know? And and then when you kind of step back and 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 not be judgmental towards her, then you actually see what she went through and how strong she was throughout this whole thing and how despicable all the adults were. Yeah. Realize, oh, my God, she deserves a great deal of credit. I, this is the, the, the best defense of Monica I think I've I've ever read. I agree. And, and, you know, and, you know, it's the kind of the same thing, you know, in looking at Eleanor Roosevelt. She, you know, that, that oh, we can't get into her uh, lesbian affair. Screw that. Right. Yeah. You know, this is something that to be understood, right? And 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 really show what a champion she was. Same thing with Dolly Madison, and mm-hmm. you know that 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 was something that we really focused on. That these these female figures are also part of the story of sex because they're sexual beings too. Of course, of course. And I think that it's a lot better now. In twenty uh, in twenty twelve, when I read this, I think it was getting better at that point. So I think the time it came out was a really good book. How was it received when you first wrote it? Did you get a lot of great reviews or, or was it more like people weren't willing to touch it? A little bit of both. <laughs> it was a mixed bag. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was one um, writer who said that, you know, that she was shocked because she went in thinking, oh my God, it's going to be Larry Flynn. This yeah. one historian. And then she said, I just couldn't believe this is actually a feminist <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was excellent. You know, and and you know, we we both felt so re- really sort of reassured, and and we were like, oh god, I'm so glad somebody got it, especially yeah. a fellow academic, right? Because then we, we you know, we're both like, okay, we're not just gonna get thrown into the the, the bin. This yeah. is just some you know peeping under people's mattresses. You know, did this you ever did you ever read Larry's book? 
where he talks about like when he put a bounty out for whoever can bring information during Bill Clinton's time. Yeah. So, and that was another part of the story of the Bill Clinton story is that when the impeachment start starts up, Larry puts out this ad offering a bounty mm -hmm. on any sex stories involving the U.S. congressman. I know, you're so wild. I love it. Right? And he starts to get a number of stories, and he takes down Robert Livingston, the yeah. Speaker of the House, Bill Barr, one of the uh, uh, leaders of the impeachment hearing. He tars Newt Gingrich yeah. because, you know, that's one thing that we both just hate. It's just hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, uh, these people who stand for moral values, including Bill Clinton, who yeah. signed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, banning gay marriage. Bill Clinton, that paragon of marriage, right? Right. Uh, just the hypocrisy of it. So Larry Flint exposes these guys, brings down Robert Livingston, and uh, really just shows, you know, D.C.'s kind of a cesspool. Oh, definitely. And that all these guys who are standing up for virtues and marriage and morality, you know, half of them are like, you know, that, that senator from Idaho who's having gay sex in stalls. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, come on. Guys. What did your class think of or how was your environment of your class during the Bill Clinton scandal? Was it as wild as it got during Donald Trump's presidency or not as much? Yeah. That was a long time ago. First. <laughs> it was. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I just started teaching. I didn't even have a Ph.D. at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look. At that point, I'm teaching Gen X, and Gen X, I'm Gen X, you're Gen X. We have a very cynical view of politicians. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us were surprised or appalled or, like, you know, mm -hmm. particularly dis disgusted, titillated. I mean, yeah. it was funny on Saturday Night Live. But, yeah, for sure. You know, it, was, it wasn't like anybody was getting excited about, the, you know, the standing up for the moral state of America from our generation. That's not our way. And uh, and so that that kind of was the attitude of this, the students at the time. And uh, now millennials are a bit more judgmental. About yeah. These yeah. I know when it changed for me in school was 9-11. Yeah. 9-11 history class was never the same. How history works it, when you have this kind of pivotal turning point of history. Yeah. Uh, when it happens, it calls for this complete revisiting of the history prior history. Mm -hmm. And this can also distort our historical perceptions because then we look at, oh, we missed this clue and that clue and that mm -hmm. clue and that clue that got to this, to this moment here. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it's also enlightening because I make a point in the book is that while Bill Clinton is consumed, his presidency is consumed by the Monica Lewinsky business, he is trying to kill Bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, he is trying to deal with the, the emerging threat of terrorism, which he can't talk about publicly because that would just raise his profile. When he did take a strike at uh, what he thought was uh, a bin Laden pharmaceutical chemical plant in Sudan, he gets accused of wagging the dog, mm -hmm. right? Because that movie had come yeah. out. So the, the fact is that but the warning is we can't allow sex scandals to ever again occupy the president's attention. Right. That's when the Supreme Court said that civil lawsuits against the president can go forward. That was a terrible ruling because the presidency, we learned, is not dead. It's not unnecessary. It is absolutely necessary. Is there ever a sex scandal you think warrants the public's attention? 
Well, if it's a criminal thing. Um, okay. Besides, you know, I wouldn't say you know a willing, yeah, a willing yeah, affair. You know, no. I mean, I, I don't. I can't imagine it. Even uh, only if there's hypocrisy involved. Okay. Like if like if you had you know somebody who's condemning gays and then is gay or getting into gay sex, (laughs) then yeah, Yeah. it's totally warranted, right? Right. Uh, But something that's not involving politics, then no. Yeah, yeah. I I think you're right. It's with the hypocrisy, and not that I agree with Larry Flint on this, but I think he said he's like, oh, if they can fight a war or keep us from going to war and balance a budget, they can fuck whoever. They want. And though obviously it's far more nuanced. Within limits. Within limits, of course. It's far more nuanced than that. But I but why do you think why do you think Americans are so prude? Like compared to Europe? Well, Americans are have a very interesting relationship yeah. with sex. And let's just take first off, you know, the the that puritanical those Puritans up in uh, New England who, yeah. you know, founded this country, right? That's still in our DNA. Yeah, you know, it's just there, right? And um, that's one thing. The other thing is, look in in Europe, European politicians, let's say in the 18th century and 19th century, they were from well-known, prominent families. Like if you knew the family, right, you just sort of trusted. Okay, that's the right candidate. The United States, it wasn't like that. Like the private life of the candidate was really what you had to go on in terms of how he'll perform in office, right? Whether if he's honest in his private life, will he be honest in his public life, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're a democracy and a republic and a nation of, of immigrants, mm-hmm. you know, voluntary and involuntary, now kind of forces us to fall back not on, okay, he's from that family, that famous longtime family, right? Royal noble family, mm-hmm. right? But you know, we got to understand who is this man. Yeah. And, and so the personal life became a way of of getting a sense of how they're going to perform in public office. That said, when we look at elections where the sex life of the president actually emerges, you look at the 1828 election, which was a dirty election between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, and it brought out Andrew Jackson's wild sex life. You look at the, the uh, election of Grover Cleveland, who fathered a child, mm-hmm. uh, um, this young woman, and he wasn't married to her, and that came out during his election. No one cared. If you look yeah. at at uh, 2016, right, you know, the, there was this big push on the Democratic Party. I think they got lost in this. I think the Hillary campaign thought that by bringing out Donald Trump's sex life, they're actually going to score points and it's going to get Republicans to not vote for him. It didn't work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work. When the Bill Clinton in 1992, we knew about Jennifer Flowers, yeah. although he denied it. But, you know, right. we all knew. Come on. Yeah, right? yeah. Americans don't really care. They yeah. they are fascinated. They are titillated. They find it, you know, just, just funny and fun. But at the end of the day, it doesn't affect their votes. Yeah, I think so you're right. So it's a weird thing. Unless it you was know? like violent in nature. That's yeah, all yeah, different. No, no, no. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Not a crime. Just a sex. Yeah. Just sex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the French, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll know about their... There are precedents. You yeah, know. like Sarkozy had like a... Sarkozy. Yeah, it was like open. About yeah. His, Olan uh, had partner. a child with a uh, yeah. woman. You know, Mitterrand had his mistress, you know, at yeah. his funeral, right? She was like in the front row yeah. with the wife. There was the mistress and the wife. Like everybody knew. Right? Yeah. It's on national television. No one cares, right? We care, but don't care. We like pretend that we care just so we can yeah. show what good people we are, but we don't really care. That's why I kind of love reading a book like this because 
you don't feel, especially if you kind of grew up in a repressed nature, like in the sense of like kind of more religious parents, like a smaller area of the U.S. where like things are a little more conservative. You read something like this and you're like, oh, damn, everyone has these proclivities. And And yeah, that's that's something that, you know, just rereading the book for this podcast, I reread it again. And, you know, it's like somebody else wrote it. You know, it's been so long. <laughs> I would so say, how do you feel book. when you reread it? Are you like, oh, I wrote that? What? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and I was like, oh, God damn, that's a good line. That's good. <laughs> that's funny. Right. But I also sort of rereading it. It's I wanted to get the reactions of contemporaries. So mm-hmm. to to read, you know, what are people in James Buchanan's day saying about his relationship with William Rufus King? Yeah. Right. What are our people in uh, Franklin Roosevelt's day saying about Eleanor and her lesbian friends? Mm-hmm. And you kind of see, you know, I've been talking about this and maybe it's behind closed doors instead of, you know, as commonplace conversation in the media. People have been talking about lesbianism and gays and right. think forever and affairs and sex and abortion, Right. Um, people have been talking about it since the colonial era. Yeah. Right. It's just that we have been ignoring it or censoring it from our media. So we look back and think about these people as being, oh, how uptight and proper and moral they were back in the founding fathers generation. But that was not the case. They were just like us human beings. Yeah. Do you think all roads kind of lead back to the church and its influence on us as Americans? Because like the Romans and the Greeks, they kind of, they all fucked each other. I mean, at what point did did that? I mean, it was all it was considered normal. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. And you know, here it's just like we're just now getting to the point where it's like, okay, he's gay. Like Obama's. Uh, do you see that letter that came out about Obama, where he wrote a letter to his, I think, then girlfriend, and he talked about like having fantasies about men. Right. No one was shocked about it. No. This is my point. Yeah. You know, because it just doesn't, it doesn't doesn't matter, right? Somebody can be, you know, perfectly fine president and Mm -hmm. be having a little something on the side, gay or straight. Yeah. Uh, And that is how the American public views it by and large. Yeah. Right. Maybe not the loudest, most public voices because it's so much easier to come out on TV and condemn this immorality, just boost yourself up as, as a very moral person. And, but- Majority couldn't care less. Yeah. And I do find the ones on their soapboxes tend to fall the hardest and they usually have something behind it. I remember what's his name? Bill O'Reilly. I mean, like my dad was like obsessed with Bill O'Reilly. And I used to, I'd be like, dad, I'm telling you, someone who screams that loud has something to hide. He's like, what are you talking about? This is also the same man who could not believe about Sally Hemings and, uh, yeah. Thomas, I couldn't even imagine what he'd think if I told him about Abraham Lincoln. Hey, give him the book. <laughs> well, unfortunately, he's passed away. But oh, yeah, no, it's fine. But I think it's just amazing how they're unwilling to accept um, acts. And so I can imagine someone of that generation reading this and just, even though your footnotes are insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 you know, put a lot of footnotes because I yeah. wanted, you know, any, any skeptical reader to see, no, mm-hmm. no, no, this is backed up. Yeah. So- that that's why I did that. No, the, 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 I remember, you know, my, my father, one of his friends said, uh, you know, Dave, you know, this is when my the TV show came out mm-hmm. uh, at its TV. I hosted a show on the history channel uh, called 10 things you don't know about. 
And I would, in the course of a 22 minute episode, tell you 10 things you didn't know about Abraham Lincoln and uh-huh. J. Edgar Hoover, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of knew about J. Edgar Hoover being gay, but Abe Lincoln, man, <laughs> did you have to go there with Abe Lincoln? <laughs> and this was your own dad? <laughs> no, this was my dad's friend. Oh, your dad's friend. <laughs> That's so funny. So, who is your favorite president? Oh, uh, Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy. You know, even I mean, after everything you've learned. Yeah, I mean, look, because I don't judge people on, you know, the consensual sexual stuff. Even though he was kind of mm, reckless about it and maybe could have done better, too. Yeah, no, no, it's, no. What he Uh, stood for. No, I'm not saying he was the best president. I I think Abraham Lincoln was the best president, Mm -hmm. you know, and then George Washington or FDR, two, two or three. But in terms of my favorite, and that's because Jack Kennedy was trying to end the Cold War. He understood after the Cuban Missile Crisis, that this is not tenable and does back-channel dealings with Khrushchev. They come up with the nuclear test ban treaty to stop the polluting of the atmosphere by all these atmospheric nuclear tests, right? And it was the beginning, he hoped, to start to actually limit arms and maybe reduce and, like, just learn, as he says in the peace speech, sort of understanding that you know, you have your system, we have our system, let's agree to disagree and let's do what we can to make this a more peaceful world. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and there was so much opposition to that. And I'm not talking about political opposition. I'm talking about heavy opposition with the defense department and the CIA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think it ultimately got him killed and, but, and he knew it he, mm-hmm. sort of like Martin Luther King Jr. Right. You know you're dealing with heavy people with the ability to just take you out and no one's going to ask any questions afterwards. And yet you still put yourself out there and you still pursue what you believe to be the right way. Right. Oh, there. I read something recently that there's going to be some new evidence supporting that it could have been possibly an inside job or have some connection to it. That's yeah. Something. Well, look, you know, I write about this in the book. When Robert Kennedy heard, he was uh, in his house in Virginia, when he gets the news from J. Edgar Hoover that his brother had been shot and killed, he immediately calls the head of the CIA, the director of the CIA, and says, is your outfit responsible for this horror? And he always believed that this was a rogue CIA operation. And by the way, his son, RFK Jr., is he's also talking about this, and we've gotten way more information about the CIA connections. And, uh, you know, like I said to my students, you know, there's a reason why the CIA isn't giving us all the documents. Yeah. What are they, who, what are they protecting? Yeah. Secrets and sources. I mean, you know, you know, who, who, who are they protecting here? No, they're protecting the CIA. Now, uh, you know, whether it was this rogue operation or it was orchestrated from within inside the, the CIA, um, mm-hmm. uh, who knows, but the CIA is still protecting whoever was responsible. Yeah. How do you feel about, uh, I guess it would be his nephew running right now? It's, it's well, RFK's son, but JFK's nephew. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Uh, how do I feel? You know, I don't want to talk about politics, but, <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I will say, Joe Biden better give him some security protection, mm. secret service protection, because, yeah. you know, given the history, how could you yeah. possibly risk it in yeah. this climate, in this country? It's could very you, irresponsible. Could you explain the term Camelot? Yeah. Just for those who didn't really grow yeah. up with this and how that came to be. Well, Jackie gave an interview with William Manchester, who was a historian who was working on a piece about the Kennedy Kennedy years and the assassination. 
right after the assassination. And she understood, you know, she gives, and I quote this in the book, she says, I don't care if it was the CIA or the FBI or some lone nut killed Jack. I'm going to make sure that his legacy, right, is as a hero, that, that America needs to believe in heroes. And so she talked about how Jack loved the musical Camelot, which is, was about the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And this sort of golden age when it was just filled with heroes and everybody was smart and everybody was fighting for justice and civil rights and peace. And it was a bright, shining moment in America and uh, just like Camelot. And that becomes the, the, the way in which this historian writes about it. And it goes down to kind of frame the Kennedy presidency for a generation. Wow. And do you feel... Uh that the Kennedy curse is true. Do you feel there is a lot of bad things, man? a lot of bad things to this family? And this, again, why Joe Biden is crazy not to give Secret Service protection to, to Robert Kennedy. It's just. Did he deny it? Is that what you're Denied saying? it. Denied it. Okay. I didn't even know this. Denied it. Whereas John McCain had Secret Service protection, you know, long further out from the election than. than... Why do you think he denied it? <laughs> well, I think that. Well, I, I buy what RFK says. It's to make it a drain on the campaign resources, the money, right? Because okay. providing security, which Kennedy knows he ha needs, right, is mm -hmm. very expensive. So you drain their resources. Yeah. Politics is a dirty game. Dirty yeah. game. Well, uh, you ran for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did you feel once you were in it? You've studied it, you know, 30 yeah. foot view for so long and then yeah. you got to do it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for years... In, Geez, decades. Uh, I've been teaching this and writing about it, uh, about politicians. And I've always had this kind of question in my mind. Why do they almost never do the right thing once they get into office? Why do they break all their campaign promises? And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to be the professor who jumps into the ring and becomes the politician and gets elected to an office in New York City called the public advocate, which was just perfect. Right. You don't really have that many responsibilities. All all you are is the mouthpiece of the people calling out corruption and waste and fraud. Hey, and you're perfect for that. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I realized, oh, my, this is this is why they never do the right thing. First off, it's all about raising money. It's very hard to raise the money if you don't yeah. do some dirt. Okay. Because why else would somebody give you money if they don't think that you are going to give them, yeah. the, you know, uh, they're going to look the other way on this issue right. and that, you know. Flip your opinion or flip your position, you know, once you get into office. So it's all about fundraising and and then you become a puppet of somebody else. I'm like, you know, look, I'm a professor. No one's policing what I say in the classroom except the students. But, you know, right. I've been able to stay out of trouble. Now. <laughs> all right. But I got no boss right. who is policing what I'm saying. I, You know, no one's telling me what to write, what right. to say. Right. Why the hell would I surrender that? You know, even if I could get elected, I'd be miserable taking orders from somebody else. So I, I'm glad I did it. But, yeah. uh, and I, and it just enlightened me like, oh, that's it. It comes down to the money, which is what pretty much everybody knows. But can uh, you say who wanted to contribute? Like wanted to contribute push, to me? Yeah. To push their agenda. Uh, no, no one would give it. No. <laughs> They're like, never mind. He cannot be bought. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, you could not be bought. It, it, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, a person like me wouldn't even be able to close i got it that uh as soon as i got close they would come after me and that always was on my mind 
Yeah. That was my, always on my mind. If I ever got close enough, you know, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You just got to just go for it. So, yeah. Did, did, did that kind of depress you to understand that that's what people, what they go through to get to these positions and that's why there's really not much progress? It, it, well, it's more like enlightenment, enlightenment, enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enlightening. I, enlightening. Yeah. Right. Yep. Where something that it's a mystery to you mm-hmm. now suddenly becomes clear. Thursday, and so it's yeah. liberating as well. It's not depressing. It's almost like, ah, oh, now I understand. Yes. Yes. Right. And so instead of being frustrated and depressed about it, you're like, oh, fuck it. Right. And it, once you get to the place of, oh, fuck, okay, no, I can focus on something else like love. Instead of politics. Seriously. Yeah. I don't get excited about politics anymore. I used to get so frustrated and angry at these politicians for not doing the right thing. Now I'm like, of course they're not going to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're not. uh, There's no room for them to do the right thing. Do you think that's why someone like Donald Trump could have gotten in? He's independently wealthy. I mean, you know, so he, he was able to fund his entire campaign, wasn't bought off by anyone. Yeah. Do you think that's really the only way to get there at this point without someone? Yeah, I do. And yeah. and yet, despite that, who does Donald Trump appoint as his secretary of treasury? A Goldman Sachs guy. Well, yeah. You know, it's like they can't get away with it. Can't get away from it. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, I would hope if Donald Trump does become president of the United States, he's learned from his mistakes and to understand you can't trust the Wall Street guys. You, know, yeah. you come back in. You know, you really want to stand up for workers. You want to take on China, then really take them on. Don't bring in Larry Kudlow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this Wall Street you know, yeah. puppet to be in charge of anything, right? Yeah. You got to really stand up. And it's not going to be easy taking on China for real, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to sacrifice a lot of goodwill on Wall Street as a result of it, but it might actually help out America in the long run. And I hope that's his lesson. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think he learns too much. No, but. that's the problem. You know, when when and you he's don't at a accept point now, where he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. no, I mean that, and that's kind of a scary, sad sort of because you know, instead of you know being a normal human being and saying, "Oh, mm-hmm. I had this experience, I lost, I made some mistakes," mm-hmm. all right? Okay, I'm never going to do that again. Winning again will just be confirmed. Oh, it was stolen from me in the first place. And, yeah. you know, that that's how I lost. Well, that's why Joe Rogan even said, he said, I won't interview him. She, he's like, I couldn't get him to tell me the truth. Yeah. And he doesn't drink, which I'm not saying you have to drink to like do a podcast, but he's like, I could never even get him loose enough where we could have an eye to eye. He's like, yeah. he will always be a character. Yeah. And I, th- I do think that's the unfortunate truth. So now that you know that you really have to have the proper connections and the money, do you think our vote counts? Do you want to believe it counts? Is it tough to say that as a professor? Yeah. Of course. Look, <laughs> I'm a cynic, but at the heart of every cynic yeah, is a romantic. Oh, of course. Like the most romantic. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I've got a bit of Irish in me. <laughs> so I got that, you know. I just, I like to believe, mm-hmm. even in the face of it all. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of my students mentioned this, you know, she was like, you know, you write so cynically and talk so cynically about politics and yet you're working in politics. I was working for Gravel. Okay. Yeah. At the time. And, and that's, I said that I said, you just still believe, even though you see the bullshit and yeah. you see through all the games, but you still got to believe that what you're doing counts. 
And if more and more people see that, and by the way, I'm feeling it right now yeah. in, in looking at what's going on, on on YouTube and how many different voices and how many people are challenging yes. this duopoly of the Democrats and the Republicans and how many people have abandoned this idea of red versus blue. Absolutely. Um, and it's just, yeah, okay, this, it might be happening now, seeing through the bullshit of the CIA and the, the presidents, mm -hmm. regardless of what party in Wall Street and the military industrial complex, I, you know, right. maybe that's happening. And that's why I, I do believe that, that YouTube and the internet have been ultimately very good for American politics. I mean, honestly, I don't even, I don't even have a cable package anymore. I only yeah. stream. So like I never even see CNN, Fox, MSNBC. Like I literally get all my news from independent YouTube channels. Obviously, you know, you get like things like the Washington Post with their ads, like through Instagram and everything. But the second you click on it, it's like, oh, please subscribe yeah. for this amount of money. And I never do. Yeah. No, it's like it's like yeah. getting off a, a drug. Yeah. And and now when when you look after just consuming your news from independent media types on YouTube mm -hmm. or, or bloggers or whatever, then when you turn on CNN or you you're like, oh, my God. Can I tell you so where stupid. CNN lost me? <laughs> you're going to laugh. Okay. MH370, that airplane that went missing. Yeah. Holy fucking Christ. Yeah. Every hour, we have an update. We don't know what's going on, yeah. but they have an update. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, you don't have anything. Shut up. Like, I could I could not even believe it. That's when CNN lost me. This is way before Donald Trump. Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. like, what is this? Right, right. And, and uh, the reduction of complicated stories, like the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Right? The, the How they reduce it and simplify the narrative. And you're like, oh, my God. Or the right. ridiculous headlines. The ridiculous headlines. and You know, the good guys versus bad guys mm -hmm. framing of everything. And it's just like, that is not the truth. Yeah. Right. And and why you're doing this, in part, it's because you don't have enough time to get into the details because you've got to explain a complicated narrative in, mm -hmm. in less than two minutes. Yeah. Right. Because that's all you're getting. You know, even if you bring on an intelligent guest. Right. You could you can't talk for more than 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's stupid. It's a stupid medium television. And then, of course, you're pushing an agenda yeah. right? because you, you you've got sponsors, you got, you know, big pharma funding you. So, of course, you're you're not going to take on big pharma. Right. So I don't know how anybody still watches television. I don't know. It's just I mean, if they do, they have to be significantly older and like do not know how to stream. Like, seriously, <laughs> seriously, like my poor mother, she's kind of in that yeah. place, but I, I got her set up where she knows her clicks very well to oh. get to the streaming. Dig this. I introduced my mom to YouTube and within like two weeks, she becomes a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. Oh my God. My mom loves Jordan Peterson too. <laughs> she loves him. And then because I went to school in Montreal, she's right. like, oh, look at this Canadian. Now. Oh my God. I'm just like. No, <laughs> totally. <laughs> though, though, I don't hate Jordan Peterson. I think, unfortunately, he unfortunately has been radicalized. Yeah, you it, know when Jordan Peterson gets himself into trouble when he starts to talk politics. Yeah, he, he just he just gets off on that. But I mean, You're so off right. base. Yeah, when he's talking about psychology, and, oh, he's excellent, and, and society, and you know the crisis of, of of men in America. That's he's right on about that, dude. When he gets into politics, it's just like Jordan. 
It's like, yeah. this is not your wheelhouse. It's not your wheelhouse. It's not your thing. But also, it's I'm not against anyone expressing their opinion. Obviously, that's the point of these platforms. But don't. I also believe in this. You can say whatever you want, but the public's allowed to react in any way they yeah, want. Yeah, totally. So. Totally. You know, but, uh, but yeah, so, so yeah, so she's, she's totally in Jordan, <laughs> you know. That's so funny. I know a lot of older women that love Jordan Peterson, yeah. but you know why? I also, I think he's great for people that have a lack of structure. He's really great at saying, doing this, 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 this. And I think like the older generation enjoys yeah. that because I think that was their generation. Like, just get up and do but it. Do you know who else enjoys it? Younger generation. I have yeah. all these male students who come up to me and they're like, Professor Eisenbach, what do you think of Jordan Peterson? Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so they want it. They want that that yeah. kind of structure, which they're not getting. They want that affirmation of being a, a straight man in society mm-hmm. that they're not getting. And, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a need that Jordan Peterson is a real need that he's filling. I think also with the younger generation, because Joe Rogan brings him on a lot, which yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan. I love my Joe. mom has become a Joe Rogan fan, too. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I love everything he does. Like during COVID, he got kind of annoying. It's like, OK, we get it, Joe. Don't get the vaccine. You'll be fine. Um, but I think when he brings on guests like that and it's a very free form, long form, you know, conversation. And then Jordan Jordan also had some demons that he was battling. Like he went over, I think, to Russia and had that. Very weird. uh, Reversal of his synapses. I mean, it's like a medicated coma. So, I mean, Jordan has some some demons of his own. Yeah. I mean, I think people need to understand that there's duality to people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We all have our issues and some are worse than others, but um, but that doesn't make the message any less true because of it. Right. Exactly. Um, and uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that it's just this interesting groundswell where which if we were only watching television still, if this were in the 90s. Yeah. Right. No one would know about them. But that's the power of YouTube. It's the power of podcasting, right? It's it's the power of Joe Rogan because you're actually yeah. having a conversation in which you can get into the weeds and the details of somebody's book, yeah. right? Instead of just having to get hit, you know, the, the sound bites within less yeah. than a minute. It's been good for us as a society. Yeah. And I mean, with that, you do have to let voices like Jordan Peterson have their space. And, but it doesn't mean you have to agree with all no. of them. But that's the thing to to be able to have a conversation and be like, yeah, I can take out pieces of it that are great. And other pieces, ah, I'm not feeling that. And that's OK. Yeah. I think it's this like black and white thinking that you have to be like, oh, well, if you don't agree with one of these things, you can't be in the group. And you say one thing that's that's not what you believe in. And then you just dismiss the whole, everything they say. Yeah. Right. And or I can't even have a conversation with you now. Right. right? Because you've taken this position on this issue. And that is the real problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Because that is what's going to divide us and then make us fight each other rather than actually take on real issues that mm-hmm. need to be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. In your classrooms, do you find that your students are more informed these days or less informed from when you first started? Or is it like a different type of informed? Let's see. I think that... Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, first off, they don't know anything. I don't. Th- I'm not sure they ever knew <laughs> anything. No and if one you knows think shit. about, no one knows shit. You know, at 20 years old, that's true. You know what I mean? And um, so I think that there was 
a greater sense of context for politics, Mm -hmm. right? A greater knowledge of history, you know, let's say 10 years ago, 15 years ago than there is now. But uh, still, it's it's not that much different, yeah. right? What's really interesting, what has gotten me very excited, is that the millennials are over. <laughs> They're no longer in my classroom. I now have Gen Z, and they are way mm. cooler. They are so much cooler than millennials. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I literally had classes that I hated. Right. Because I'm like, you guys are so lame. You're so judgy. You're so kind of puritanical. As I was saying before. Right. You're so like, oh, my goodness. He said this. Right. He must be a misogynist, sexist, blah, 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 blah. Right. Now these Gen Z, they're like, hey, man, that's cool. Oh, that's interesting. Right. They're so much more curious. They're not know-it-alls. Right. That was the thing about these millennials. Right. They were they were so like. I know everything. I'm the best. I'm a special snowflake. I'm so tough. But they're really brittle. Right, right. You know, that attitude. These Gen Z uh, are, they are cool. They they, yeah. they understand that I'm just a kid. Yeah. You know, they are much more humble. That's good to hear. I actually yeah. have good experiences with Gen Z myself. And me being a millennial, I actually find millennials tend to hate on Gen Zs. Yeah. So much. And I don't... And I think it's, it's, it goes the other way, too. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm By sure. the way, the generation no one cares about. Genetics. Baby boomers oh. rag on millennials. Millennials rag on boomers. The Gen Z and the millennials are now fighting. Yeah. But nobody says anything bad about Gen X. It's so true. No one gives a damn about Gen X. It's like the generation left behind. Well, it's the silent generation. <laughs> truly silent. You know, it's a truly silent, right? Uh, no one gives a damn. We don't, we don't really have any political leaders. Yeah. You know, what do we got? But every Gen Xer I know is pretty chill and down the middle. Yeah. Like, they're just like, what? Well, it, right, whatever. It's just like Star Wars, I find. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't get us started on Star Wars because we'll just chew, chew your ear off. And, <laughs> so then if you, and then that's one thing we'll be judgy on. Because <laughs> yes. if you don't love Star Wars, my God, I can't really talk to you. Do I like the story of Star Wars? I'll be honest. I don't like the cinematography. Okay. It, it's old to me. Yeah. But I find, like, I anytime I make that complaint, like, people who love Star Wars are like, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm used to, like, amazing graphics and, like, CGI. So yeah, for me, no, it's no, some no. days no, I'm like, No, but that's, that is the beauty of it to okay. our eyes. I see. Okay. Because right? the CGI just doesn't work in our eyes for our eyes. I mean, the story is good. But like I yeah. said, just cinematography, I'm kind of like, <laughs> that's no. my only complaint. <laughs> you know, what, what? I have a nephew who's um, nine, and uh, so I've introduced him to Star Wars. Does he, he like it? He, God, he loves it. Good. You know, he discovered my Star Wars figures at uh-huh. my parents' house, his grandma. Oh. And uh, so that's how we I introduced him to the, before he even saw the movies. It was through the Star Wars figures and storytelling and how each figure has a story and how they are relationships and and. It's just a beautiful kind of metaphor for life. It's the hero's journey. And, yeah. You know, George Lucas doesn't invent this, but he uses it and puts it in a brilliant frame that really teaches his important, you know, ideas about the dark side. Yeah. And and being aware of the dark side within and and knowing that you can either use it or you can be used by it. Yeah. 
and and then finally triumphing through the power of love. Oh my God! I know he's such a nerd here, Professor. He loves it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do actually. I really do like it. I think I totally agree with you. I remember the first one I actually saw was younger. I my little brother. I took him to see. I think it's episode three when when he becomes Darth Vader. Oh, uh, oh you're talking about the prequels. Yes. That was the first one uh, I actually saw. Introduction, yeah. Well, either way, I, I actually liked it. From what I hear, that's the worst one. I don't know why. But the guy who played Anakin was like incredibly gorgeous. Just oh, FYI. Totally. Oh, my God. That's how he got the job. Certainly wasn't his acting. <laughs> that's what I hear. That it's bad. I didn't know. I didn't know any better. But when he became Darth Vader, like, you know, they like lifted him up yeah. and the place started clapping. I was like, oh, these people are hardcore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it was yeah. the most terrifying experience in all of my movie-going history was when I was five years old and that opening scene when Darth Vader walks through that doorway. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is that? Right, yeah. The greatest movie villain ever, this dark presence, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I just, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Yeah. No, they're good. They're good movies. So I don't think anyone should hate on them, minus my... My uh, comment on the cinematography, which I know is what people love. Well, either way, thank you so much for coming here. And you know what I think you should do? I would love to have this book, actually both your books, but definitely One Nation Under Sex as an audible and updated with the latest scandals. Yeah. I think that you got to do this. Yeah. Because people need to read this. They need to know it's part of our history. And this is... This is the human... The human, human condition. Human condition, correct. That's the word I was trying to look for. But thank you so much for coming. This oh, has been amazing. You. This is a lot of fun. All right. Appreciate it.